Turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 2. Exodus chapter 2, I'll be preaching this morning in verses 1 through 10. And as you turn there, let's go to the Lord and ask His blessing on the reading and preaching of His Word. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You for the hope that we have that You have given us a deliverer. And because You have given us a deliverer, we can be free from our sins. We pray this morning that as we hear from Your Word and study Your Word, that we might see Christ and the beauty of the grace that we've received in Him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'll begin reading in verse 22, actually, of, of Exodus chapter 1, verse 22, and then in through chapter 10 of the following, cha- or verse 10 of the following chapter. Hear the word of the Lord. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, because, she said, I drew him out of the water. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Amen? William Cowper was a prolific hymn writer. We have some of his hymns in the Trinity hymnal and sing sing them. His life, however, was far from easy. John Piper describes Cowper's life as one long accumulation of pain. And he was notably afflicted with mental anguish. He was born in 1731 in England. He was six years old when his mother died. And he was reared for the remainder of his childhood by his father, with whom he had a very strained and difficult relationship. In his 30s, he dropped out of his law practice. And he would later be described as battling four major bouts of depression in his life and attempted suicide on several occasions. 
1764, Cowper was in St. Albans Insane Asylum when he encountered a Bible. And there were two passages that he would come to read that would change his life. The first was John 11, the story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. And there he read that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Second, he read Romans 3.25, that God had put forth Jesus as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Cowper's eyes were opened to the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he became delivered from his sin. In 1767, he moved to only England to be under the ministry of none other than John Newton. And the two of them together developed a friendship, especially Newton taking an interest in Cowper because he knew that he was inclined to battles of depression and reclusiveness. It's remarked that they spent time together, walking together and discussing Scripture together. And in fact, they decided to collaborate together on creating a hymnal. Newton would go on to write more than 200 of those beloved hymns, and Cowper would write 68 of the hymns that would be included in that hymnal. One of those hymns written by Cowper is a hymnal entitled, God Moves in a Mysterious Way, in which he describes the mysterious nature of God's providence and the challenge of accepting God's providence as a Christian. No doubt, as he reflected on his own difficulties in his life. Listen to some of the verses of God moves in a mysterious way. Verse 1, God moves in a mysterious way His wonders to perform. He plants His footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. So the Christian life being one described as that of being at sea and being rocked by the storms of life. And yet, God's Providence is there. He is moving in a mysterious way. Verse 2, Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, He treasures up His bright designs and works His sovereign will. So yet, despite the Christian's difficulty in life, despite the Christian's storms in life, God is at work. Verse 3, Ye fearful saints... Fresh courage take, the clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Isn't that beautiful? I'm sure the Israelites, as we read here in Exodus chapter 1 and 2, they probably could have used that hymnal to encourage them in the difficulty that they were having in Egypt. Where was God during their suffering? Where was God during their abuse? Where was God during the death of Hebrew baby boys and the infanticide that they would endure? Yet amidst such a horrendous storm of suffering, God was at work. His providence mysterious to them, and as we read Exodus chapter 2, yet unknown to them. And yet, here is God at work raising up for them a deliverer 
Who will set them free from their bondage and their suffering? God had, in fact, not abandoned them. Far from it. The storm clouds would soon break and pour out blessings upon the Israelites. And they would learn something that would set the course for all of redemptive history throughout the rest of Scripture. Here's the lesson. God provides the Deliverer. That's what the Israelites are going to learn. God provides the Deliverer. Over the next couple of chapters, we're going to look at Israel's Deliverer, a man named Moses. And we're going to see God's hand of providence involved not only in Moses' life, but also for Israel as he is preparing them for a miraculous exodus from their bondage in Egypt. So let's begin looking together and we'll start with where Moses begins with his own birth. How was God's providence at work in providing Israel a deliverer? First, I want you to see, among the three things we'll see in this passage, first I want you to see that Moses was given as a providential progeny. Moses was given first as a providential progeny. First we see Moses is a son of who? What's his tribe? He's a son from the tribe of Levi, isn't he? We see this in chapter 1 that despite the decree of Pharaoh, there are two individuals. We learn their names later in Exodus and also in Numbers. Moses' parents by the name, his father was Amram and his mother went by the name of Jochebed. Amram was the son of Kohath who was the son of Levi. And Jochebed was the daughter of Levi. So let me just connect the dots for you. Amram married his aunt. Okay, now I know this disturbs some of our modern sensibilities here, uh, but what Moses is cluing us in on here in verse 1 is that he is a, of a pure stock of the tribe of Levi. In God's providence, this is going to be the tribe that God chooses to be the clergy for Israel as they make their exodus from Egypt. Think of all that Moses is going to be engaged in, mediating on behalf of God's people. We often think about Moses as a prophet, and he was a prophet, but he also functioned in a priestly role, did he not? He mediates the covenant. He uh, engages in sacrifices on behalf of God's people. He uh, oversees the construction of the tabernacle, leading God's people into worship. He teaches them God's law. These are all priestly functions that Moses is engaged in. And we are learning here in this passage that this is all in the providence of God. That Moses is coming from a providential progeny. Here we learn that, uh, furthermore, that he was also not only a son of Levi, he was also a son of Eve. Now, I know you're wondering, where is that in the passage? Let's look at verse 2. Jochebed conceived a child to Amram. She bore a son. 
She saw that he was a fine child and she hid him for three months. So we know what's happening. The infanticide is taking place in Egypt. Pharaoh has commanded that all the Hebrew baby boys are to be gathered up and thrown into the river. And so Jochebed, she determines that she is going to hide him. Hebrews chapter 11 records for us that this Moses' parents did as an act of faith. Faith in what? Faith in God's promises. What promise did they have faith in? Well, if you go back to Genesis, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, what was God's promise to Eve? One of her offspring would deal a mortal bruise to the head of the serpent that had deceived them into sin. And so when you arrive at Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, we read that Adam knew Eve, his wife, and Eve conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Notice the verbal pair, conceived and bore. Where else do we see that? Well, it's in verse 2. Jochebed conceived and bore. This verbal pair is used 15 times throughout the book of Genesis uh, indicating noteworthy births at important points in the story of Genesis where God is carrying the plan of redemption forward. We see it in Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, where Eve conceived and bore a son. We also see it in the story of Abraham and Sarah. In Genesis 21, 2, we read the verbal pair again. Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. In Genesis chapter 29 through 30, we see this verbal pair repeated again and again and again as Jacob's wives, Rachel and Leah, are competing with each other to see who can bear more sons for Jacob. And so here they are, conceiving and bearing all these different sons for Jacob. Again, the verbal pair is used. This is uh, God carrying forward the plan of redemption. Moses, being the author of Genesis, he is carrying that verbal pair forward and he applies it to his birth. He applies it to his birth. And then he never uses the verbal pair again, for the rest of the Pentateuch. In his commentary, Dr. Doug Stewart mentions that Moses understood himself to be the final figure in a long line of persons through whom God had been preserving and preparing the formation of the nation of Israel. There are no more covenantally significant births that will take place in the Pentateuch. That makes sense? Right? This is a, a fulfillment of God's promise to Eve. In other words, the birth of Moses, in the words of Dr. Stewart, is the last required special mention of a birth story in the Pentateuch. Moses was given a providential progeny. Isn't it interesting then? What a picture of Christ that in His providence... God has given us a providential progeny in our deliver, in our Savior Jesus Christ. Galatians chapter 4, in Galatians chapter 4, we read about the progeny of Christ 
that in the fullness, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth whom? He sent forth His Son. So God is working everything out according to His providence that at the exact moment in time when the Messiah needs to be born, He arrives. That's what Paul is saying in Galatians 4. The fullness of time had come. God sent forth His Son. What was His progeny? Born of what? Born of a woman. Born under the what? The law. Why? Paul tells us to redeem those who are under the law. Paul will conclude by saying, you are no longer a slave. Notice the Exodus language. You are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. All of this comes through our Deliverer, the Lord Jesus Christ, because of His providential progeny. What would have happened if Moses was not an Israelite? What would have happened if Moses was not a Levite? What if Moses was a foreigner and he had heard about the plight of the Israelites in slavery in Egypt and he was just moved with compassion and came as an outsider to lead the Israelites out of their bondage in Egypt? He'd have no legitimate claim then, would he? To represent God's people. He would have no legitimate claim to go before God as their mediator, to be the mediator of the covenant. He'd have no legitimate claim to stand before Pharaoh and say to him on behalf of the Lord, let my people what? Let my people go. God in His providence knew exactly the kind of Redeemer that Israel needed. He knew exactly the kind of Deliverer that Israel needed. And can I tell you, brothers and sisters, God knew exactly the kind of Deliverer that we needed in our Savior, Jesus Christ. What if Jesus had come and delivered us and did not take on a nature like our own? What if He came in his, only in His divine nature without a human body? Have you ever thought about that? Well, then He would have no legitimate claim to represent us, would He? His perfect satisfaction of God's law could not be accounted to us. He would have no legitimate claim to deliver us from our sin. And His righteousness could not be imputed to us because His perfect law-keeping would not be in a nature like our own. God knew exactly what He was doing when He gave us our Deliverer, the Lord Jesus Christ. God provides the Deliverer. It's His doing, isn't it? Moses was from a providential progeny, and can I tell you, so too was the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's the first thing I want you to see in this passage that the Deliverer is from a providential progeny. Number two, I want you to see, Moses was given providential protection. Yes, the alliteration continues. I'm a preacher. I can't help it. So here you see a providential progeny. Second, here you see a providential protection. For three months, Jochebed is hiding Moses, no doubt a bit inactive, during these days, but at some point, her tactic must change. 
Her plan is the same. She still plans to continue hiding Moses, but her tactic must change. So what does she do? She constructs for him a basket. She covers it in tar, and she places it, verse 4 tells us, in the river. So ironically here, Moses' mother is obeying the command of Pharaoh. Oh, you want all the Hebrew boys in the Nile River? Okay, sure. I'll put my baby boy in the Nile River, but I'm going to put him in a basket, hiding him among the reeds on the river where it's not so easy to see him. And then she appoints Moses' sister, we'll later learn her name is Miriam, to watch over him during his time there in this basket. Um, what was happening during this time? Was this uh, time in which Jochebed was required to go and work and labor in the field, and so she was unable to carry Moses with her lest he be discovered? Did this take place? Was she hiding him in the river among the reeds during times when searches by the Egyptians would take place of the Hebrews' house? Was she hiding him during times when Moses was especially active and noisy as a little baby? Text is completely silent. We don't know the hours at which she chose, but yet we know that God's providential hand was involved protecting him. What happens? The princess comes to the Nile River to bathe, and she is there, and she notices this basket among the reeds. She sends one of her servant girls to retrieve it, and she opens it up. Verse 6 tells us, she opened it, and what did she see? She saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying, and she recognized that this was a Hebrew baby. Was this because the Hebrew babies looked differently? Was this because the Hebrew babies were dressed differently? Was this because, as a Hebrew male, uh, Moses was circumcised? Uh, was this because he was in this odd basket in the river? And she's just putting together all the information. We don't know, do we? But God's hand was involved providing protection for Moses. What does she do when she sees this little child in this basket crying? You would expect, and certainly perhaps Miriam expected the same, for her just to simply fill that basket full of water, sinking it to the Nile River and moving on with her day. Perhaps she would pick up the baby and lunge him into the water or perhaps just simply topple that basket over, clearing her conscience of obeying her wicked father's commands to the nation. She doesn't do any of that, does she? No, God is involved. His providence is providing protection for Moses. What does she do? Verse 6 tells us that she did what? She took pity on him. She took pity on little baby Moses. This was no doubt an act of God upon her heart. Here she has the decree of the king, the most powerful ruler of the day, the Pharaoh, to cast all the Hebrew boys into the water. And does she do it? No, absolutely not. It's a bit of an irony in the story, isn't it? When you think back to the previous chapter, here, Pharaoh is paranoid about the Hebrew males 
sending them off to labor, requiring the infanticide of these males, uh, the, the male Hebrew boys, throwing them into the river, requiring all that. He is fearful of all these Hebrew males, of uh, stirring up an uprising perhaps. And who foils his plans in the providence of God? It is women every step of the way. You have got to love the story. Whether it is the Hebrew midwives or Moses' mother, Moses' sister, and now the princess, all of these women, are they are ruining Pharaoh's plans. And all of this is ordered in God's providence. You've got to love the irony in the story. It's interesting here that in this passage that the basket... This word for basket is used in only in one other place in all the Old, the Old Testament. Do you know where it's used? Some of you know. Don't say it out loud. You're going to give it away to other people. Uh, no, it's okay. This word is used only in one other story that involves water, and it is the story when Noah was told by God to make an even bigger basket. In fact, an ark where his family could go in and be saved, and where God could protect them. So perhaps Jochebed knows the story of Noah, and she is going to act it out in her own way. Okay, fine. You want me to put this baby into the water for destruction? I'm going to do it, but I'm going to trust in the Lord, and I am going to put him into an ark. And I am going to trust that God is going to protect him. You have to love the story here as Miriam, Moses' sister, sees the princess likely with crying Moses in her arms and she very slyly, very wisely goes to the princess and says, you know all those Hebrew women that are mourning the deaths of their sons? You want me to go call one of those women so that she can nurse the baby? And notice, probably an echo of Pharaoh's words to come, what does she say to Miriam? Go. And so who does Miriam go to find? She goes and gets Moses' mother, who comes running to care for her own son. All of this is God's providence involved, providing protection for Moses. Wonder if you could represent your salvation with jigsaw puzzle pieces. What would those pieces look like? You might have a piece that you would look at and say, this, this piece is my praying parents. And you would put that into the puzzle piece. Here's another puzzle piece of a song that you heard on the radio. Here's another puzzle piece of a sermon that you heard. Here's another puzzle piece of a neighbor who was loving and shared the gospel with you. All these different puzzle pieces together that represent your salvation at the time, unknown, unknowingly to you, God is arranging all of this to bring you to salvation, to deliver you from your sin. No doubt some of those puzzle pieces would be more difficult at the time to identify how they all fit in might be the death of a family member or a loved one. Like William Cowper, it might be a time of depression that you went through in your life. 
It might be some moral failings in your life. All these different puzzle pieces in your life, you cannot see at the moment how they all fit together, but God in His providence has ordained every single one of them, every single place where they should fit to bring you at the appointed time to salvation and to deliver you from your sin. No doubt if we continued on the analogy, your perseverance as well would have some puzzle pieces too, wouldn't it? Maybe again it would be an elder in your life who discipled you and prayed for you. Maybe it was a deacon in your life who came alongside of you during a struggle and assisted you and walked with you. Maybe it was a church family who just simply welcomed you into their arms and loved you. Maybe it was a spouse who was persistent in praying for you through difficulties and hardships time and time again. All these puzzle pieces in your life that God has ordained, every single piece with a precise place and purpose, God putting together all the pieces in His providence, not only to save us and to deliver us, but to ensure our perseverance. I wonder if you've ever questioned how you can be certain that your salvation is protected and secured. Well, I would encourage you to look at how God in His providence has ordered all these pieces together to protect you, to call you to Himself, and to enable you to persevere. And if you look at all that and you still struggle, then you ought to look to Christ. You probably should look to Christ first. When Jesus was upon the cross, He cried out to God using the words of Psalm 22. What, was, what did He cry out? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Here is the darkest hour in Jesus' life. He feels as if He has been abandoned by God, as if the Father has turned His back from the Son, has turned His face away, and has poured out God's wrath upon His own Son. And here Jesus cries out using this psalm that He has been forsaken. But that's not the end of the psalm, is it? The psalmist in Psalm 22 begins in that place of feeling abandoned, but he affirms by the time you get to the end of the psalm that God is the one who protects and preserves. Verse 29 of Psalm 22 says, All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before Him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Isn't that awesome? This is the psalm that Jesus prayed when the darkest hour of His life. This is the psalm that Jesus prayed, recognizing that He is surrendering Himself unto the Lord, unto the Lord's will. And as painful of a providence as that was, and at the moment as difficult as it was for the Father to turn His face away, He had an eternal hope that God would sustain Him and protect Him and not leave Him in that grave. Dear Christian, God provides the Deliverer. And if He would not forsake His Son at His darkest hour, what makes you think that He would forsake you through your difficulty? God provides the Deliverer. 
He has given Moses a providential protection. And you know who else he gave a providential protection to? Jesus. And because of that, our salvation is secure. Thirdly, I want you to see here briefly, so we've seen a providential progeny, a providential protection, and the alliteration continues. Moses was given a providential preparation. A providential preparation. Pharaoh's daughter assigns a new job to Jochebed in verse 9. What does she tell her to do? Verse 9, look with me together. Take this child away, nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So here she is in, uh, you've got to love God's sense of humor, right? In a great turn of events, Moses is provided this protection, and now she has an opportunity to receive payment in the employ of the princess to nurse and care for the very son whom she was trying to hide from Pharaoh. And so here she's given a new job. Custom in that day was for a mother to nurse the child three to four years. Three to four years. And so it was reason, it's reasonable for us to think that here Moses has another three to four years of his life in the household of Amram and Jochebed. And what precious years that must have been. You had better bet that they took every opportunity to pray with and for Moses. To tell him the stories of God's promises in the covenant so that Moses, when he would come of age, would happily embrace them. He was being prepared by his Hebrew parents for the work that he was to undertake. But not only preparation by his Hebrew parents, but the chapter tells us in verse 10, look at verse 10, when Moses grows older, where does he go? He goes into the household of Pharaoh. He is going to deliver Israel from Pharaoh, and yet here he is in Pharaoh's household being afforded every advantage and opportunity that the Egyptian education could give him. A divine protection, a divine preparation in Pharaoh's household. And there he would grow up. You can't miss what's happening though here at the end of verse 10. The princess names Pharaoh. And what Moses is doing in the story is he is giving us a preview of a miraculous act to come in the story. Look with me at verse 10. Moses' name, she, is give, she gives him the name Moses. This is a play on words, okay? First, it's a play on words in Egyptian. Uh, Moses, I, don't, I haven't studied Egyptian, so if you have, you can clue me in on this, but from what the commentators tell me, Moses in Egyptian means son of. So, Ab Moses is a Pharaoh's name, or Tutmoses is another Pharaoh's name. Tutmos, Amos, means son of Ah, or son of Tut. So here, Moses is given the name son of by the Egyptian princess. But he's not the son of anybody. Isn't that interesting? Why? He's not the son of anybody because he's not a son of any Egyptian. And so she names him simply son of. 
But there's also another play on words that's happening here. The name Moses sounds like the Hebrew verb to draw out. It sounds like the Hebrew verb to draw out. And so the princess names him Moses. Why? Verse 10, because she did what? She drew him out of the water. There he is in the Nile River among the reeds and God draws him out and saves him to protect, preserve, and prepare him for the work that he's going to undertake. And very soon in the story, we're going to read that God is going to do the same thing for who? Israel. He is going to miraculously bring them to the shore of the Sea of Reeds, or also known as the Red Sea, and He is going to do what? Draw them through safely through that sea and deliver them. All of this by God's design. Moses' life is a preview for what he's going to do when he delivers Egypt or delivers Israel from their slavery. Hebrews chapter 11, very insightful about the life of Moses. In the Hall of Faith, Hebrews chapter 11 reads, By faith, notice this, by faith, Moses, when he was grown up, he refused to be called, uh, the, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather what? To be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. So by faith, Moses, he must have known something about his birth origins. And by faith, rather than being considered a true member of Pharaoh's household, chose instead to identify with Israel in their bondage and in their slavery. And the author of Hebrews tells us, he called this, listen to what the author of Hebrews calls this, he considered the reproach, you would think the author of Hebrews would say the reproach of Israel. But that's not what the author of Hebrews says. He considered the reproach of Christ greater than the wealth of the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Isn't that awesome? Here Moses is so identified with God's people, he provides for us a picture of Christ who is also identified with God's people. And so that Moses' deliverance will be Israel's deliverance. And Christ's deliverance through His suffering, through the cross, will mean our deliverance as well. Why did Christ's work matter so much? We had a pastor who used to always say, that the infinite dignity of the one who came brought infinite value to the work that he accomplished. God appoints our deliverer. He appointed him when? Before the foundations of the world. There he made a covenant with the Father that he would go and he would redeem the people that God had elected to give to him. He was eternally prepared, you might say. He was eternally prepared to be our 
deliverer. And here we see that God has given us a perfect deliverer. A providential progeny, a providential protection, and a providential preparation. Let's go to Him in prayer.